Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law 360. I'm Natalie Urgigas, and joining me as usual is Supreme Court reporter Jamie Hoover. Hey, Jamie, how's it going? It's going great, Natalie. It is finally that time of year, opinion season at the Supreme Court. We finally just had our last argument session. It's done for the term. So yeah, I feel think. like opinion season technically started, you know, like last week or something, like with that barrage of opinions. But mm-hmm. yes, as you said, last um, argument of the term. Scheduled also- arguments. They've been known to like throw in a curveball, but I think we're in the clear and we can safely say that that was the last one of October 2021 term. Let's not put anything out in the air there, Jimmy. It's the last one. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Which means, of course. the last one course, for Justice Breyer. Exactly. Yeah. So he um, sat for his last, I guess it was a two-hour hearing on Wednesday in a uh, Native American law case, which will be the last time that we hear from Justice Breyer on the bench. I don't know. Are you a little bit, uh, what, what's your what's your quick reaction to that, Natalie? I'm going to miss him. I'm going to miss the hypotheticals. <laughs> you know, they, they're just, they're so enjoyable to kind of see what hypotheticals he would bring into each argument session, right? He certainly kept uh, court watchers and advocates, especially, on their toes. So we, so we got a you know a special tribute um, at the end of the uh, case on Wednesday from Chief Justice John Roberts, who actually I would say got a little bit emotional while he was delivering it. Let's take a listen. For 28 years, this has been his arena for remarks profound and moving questions challenging and insightful, and hypotheticals downright silly. (laughs) This sitting alone has brought us radioactive muskrats and John the Tiger Man. (laughs) Now, at the appropriate time, we will, in accordance with tradition and practice, read and enter into the record an exchange of letters between the court and Justice Breyer marking his retirement. For now, we leave the courtroom with deep appreciation for the privilege of sharing this bench with him. But Natalie, as we said, it is opinion writing season, and this morning was no exception. At 10 a.m., the Supreme Court handed down two decisions. Do you want to get into those? Yes. So um, I think the first one was a six to three ruling in Cumming versus Premier Rehab. Um, it was penned by the Chief Justice at basically said that a deaf woman can't sue for emotional distress damages under various federal civil rights laws like the Rehabilitation Act and Affordable Care Act over discrimination. Um, So kind of put some some boundaries and guidelines to how those laws can be used in in these kind of suits. Um, And then the second case was was a bit of an oddball one, right? The opinion that wasn't. The opinion that wasn't, that's right. So it was in Ledure versus, uh, I, I don't know if I'm saying that right. It was in Ledure versus Union Pacific Railroad. Um, this case should have clarified the standard for enforcing federal rail worker safety regulations, right? Now, it didn't because it was an evenly split 4-4 ruling, Justice Barrett not participating since she had actually originally participated in a Seventh Circuit panel on the case before she joined the bench. Um, because of the split um, and because they couldn't kind of have a majority, uh, there was just a procurium order, very short, just like a few lines that upheld the Seventh Circuit decision that had found the regulations at issue didn't apply um, in this case because the train that Ledger was working on when he was injured was um, not in use at the time. And I'm um, no, 
listeners cannot see me, I put that in air quotes because the dispute is whether or not the idling train was in use at the time. Um, so for now, we we don't get um, you know the Supreme Court's official weigh in on, on that one. It was as you said the the, the opinion that wasn't. Right, which is basically, uh, you know, an alarm signal going off to the Supreme Court bar that they need to get a case up to the court involving the same question, just not coming out of the Seventh Circuit where Justice Barrett can participate. Um, But we did have a full week of oral arguments this week, and we talked at length um, at our last episode uh, about Monday's arguments. Um, You know, this was a preview that we recorded last week in the case Kennedy versus Bremerton School District. This is the case of the praying football coach, the uh, coach Joe Kennedy at a Washington public high school who had a tradition of kneeling at the 50-yard line after games in prayer, often joined by his student players. And, you know, he was suspended um, and he brought this First Amendment uh, case, basically accusing the school district of violating his constitutional rights. So we talked all about the fact pattern of that case. I encourage listeners to, to go back and listen if you want to hear kind of the in-depth disputes over the factual backdrop of it. But we got a sense of you know where the court was on Monday. And to make a long story short, the conservative justices on the court were, were fairly sympathetic to uh, the coach's arguments, I would say. Um, Natalie, we talked a lot about the factual disputes, right? That's right. And how basically both sides basically disputed what even the facts of the case were. Yeah, whether you know he was encouraging or coercing the students to join him or whether this was just a simple, quiet prayer by himself. Honestly, I, I, I even said on our last episode that I thought that this factual issue would take up a bulk of oral arguments as the justices try and sift through what actually happened in this case. That really wasn't the case. The conservative justices, sure. they wanted to kind of strip this case down to its basic, basic facts in the way that Coach Kennedy's attorney, Paul Clement of Kirkland and Ellis, has kind of characterized them. The idea that uh, uh, Coach Joe Kennedy, uh, who was the coach for eight years, you know, after he had had this tradition of praying with his students at the 50-yard line, after he's, you know, basically uh, admonished by the school district that he can no longer lead these prayer speeches, he starts to do so quietly. Um, you know, he does these silent prayers. And even if sometimes he's joined by students, he's not actually compelling them to join him. And so the justices kind of focused on those facts, I guess I would say in a vacuum, really. They're trying to strip away all the, you know, backdrop and context behind this case and just examine whether or not the school district could suspend someone for a public demonstration of religious exercise by simply kneeling you know, on the 50-yard line after football games when, you know, according to some of the justices, he wasn't actually having to do any of his official coaching duties. So that kind of gives us, I think, the I think the fact that they were so, um, so unconcerned with those other facts that the school district kept trying to point out um, to the court, namely that, you know, the, the school district had been trying to accommodate uh, the coach, that this was a tradition that went on for years, that there were some uh, there's some evidence in the record that some of the students felt compelled. The fact that a lot of the justices weren't that concerned with those e- external facts kind of suggests that um, the court, at least in my view, seems to be leaning in favor of Coach Kennedy here. So it's 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 hard to say exactly how it'll come out. It was kind of a messy argument, if you will, but that was my takeaway. But I just wanted to keep that 
to be a brief recap, um, but let's move on to, to a case that we haven't really talked about that much on the podcast, and that's one that you've been following, Natalie, uh, Biden versus Texas over the very controversial re- uh, remain in Mexico immigration policy. What's the big takeaway there? Yeah, so those arguments were on Tuesday. Um, so basically, Texas and Missouri are challenging the Biden administration's move to end this policy, the remain in Mexico policy, where you know Im- migrants have to stay in Mexico until their proceedings happen, essentially. Um, it was started under former President Donald Trump. Um, Texas, you know, has argued, you know, ending the program basically violates the Immigration and Nationality Act, um, which requires or which they say requires the government to detain and send back to Mexico or Canada migrants who are not admissible. Now, the government says that immigration law essentially is, you know, makes it a discretionary decision, right? The government can do this, but it doesn't have to. But, you know, I think the bigger argument um, that, that really came up during oral arguments that seemed to hold some sway with the justices is that this is kind of a logistical nightmare to try to get the federal government to do this. So the government is basically saying, look, we have to negotiate with Mexico to return migrants. You know, and by the way, not all the migrants are actually from Mexico. They're they're traveling from Central America, South America, you know, and the, the, the rule here says return to Mexico, return to Canada, but that's not necessarily their home country. Um, so there's a lot of logistics here that have to be negotiated, and it's not just something so easily done right you know, then and there. Um, the justice did seem to lean towards the government's POV on this. You know, Congress um, hasn't allocated the resources for immigration officials to be able to handle this. Um, Justice Kagan was like, you know, do we just drive truckloads of people into Mexico and leave them there without negotiating with the country, which, you know, kind of like can't quite do that. <laughs> um, and, and Justice Roberts also seems sympathetic to the issue, but he did ask the Solicitor General, I thought, in, in a very like telling moment, you know, like, well, if we say what the law is, you know, as Texas and Missouri are arguing it, and you tell us you can't do anything about it, where does that leave us? Um, and, you know, I, I think the Solicitor General kind of talked around that question a little bit, you know, asking um, for for certain deference and, and, and you know, making her points argue without really touching on, like, well, logistically what happens on the ground if the court decides this. Um, and I think that's still an open question. Yeah, I, I tuned into a, a little bit of the arguments, and I, that was certainly the point that, Solicitor General Elizabeth Prelogger wanted to emphasize that, you know, if there's a federal district court that's basically ordering the United States government to comply with this policy, you know, it really kind of complicates the very delicate, as you say, negotiation between the two countries. And I think Kagan, as you said, even seized on that. She's like, you know, Mexico is basically going to be sitting there in these negotiations and be like, the U.S. will do anything we tell them because they are under court orders to comply and could be held in contempt. Right. So we're going to watch them squirm and, and, and have them accede to all our demands in this negotiation. So it's it's this issue where it's like on the on the one hand, it's 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 an immigration case, but it's not really a domestic immigration case because it's this it, it, it implicates all these international concerns. And I will say Chief Justice Roberts also seemed to question whether the states are seeking basically an outcome that would usurp the federal government's authority to set immigration policy. Um, so, you know. I don't want to read tea leaves, but I will say I, I, I think it seemed like 
the government's argument held some sway with the justices during these arguments. It's like that classic kind of push and pull that we've been seeing at the Supreme Court in so many cases in recent years where it's like, on the one hand, you know, there's justices that give a lot of weight to these considerations about policy, things like international relations and international comedy, things like that. And then on the other hand, there's, there's, there are other justices who say the law says what it says and uh, policy implications be damned. And so this one will be a really interesting one to see whether, how, like how the court and how a majority balances those different factors. I, I'm, this is one that I'm really interested in seeing how it shakes out. Now, Natalie, I want to pivot to the final argument of the term in Oklahoma versus Castro Huerta. This was a mammoth hearing. It was about two hours long. And I think it was so long because it centers around kind of what I would say is a is an underreported story over the past couple of years about a Supreme Court decision from 2020 that has had pretty major consequences in the state of Oklahoma. That's right. We've been kind of calling this the McGirt case, but it's not the McGirt case. The 2020 case was McGirt. Um, <laughs> can you kind of give us the backstory and just set us up how we got here? Well, just a reminder in case listeners are unfamiliar with it, the McGirt decision was a decision from 2020 in which the Supreme Court said that Congress had never actually disestablished the historic boundary of the Muscogee Creek Nation's original reservation under a 19th century treaty. So that treaty is effectively still in effect today. And what that did was it classified a large part of the state as Indian country for purposes of federal criminal jurisdiction. Now that the Creek Nation was, you know, its historic boundary stretched, you know, uh, a very large distance over the state of Oklahoma. But the McGirt decision didn't just end there. So after it was handed down, the Ohio state courts kind of interpreting McGirt applied it to the other five nations in Oklahoma as well. And so this drastically expanded uh, Indian country in the state to the point where it is now uh, half of the state is considered Indian country for purpose for purposes of federal criminal jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. So what that means is that basically the federal government has exclusive jurisdiction to prosecute crimes involving Native Americans. So that's on paper. And in practice, I mean, we've talked about this before, but it, it, it kind of has echoes of the logistical issues with the case we were just talking about, which is that the federal government doesn't quite have the resources to handle the certain upsurge, right? Right, Jimmy? Exactly. Oklahoma says this McGirt ruling has kicked off a legitimate law enforcement crisis in the state. So by classifying basically half of Oklahoma as Indian country for for purposes of, you know, federal criminal jurisdiction, that means that all of these thousands of criminal convictions that were obtained by state prosecutors bringing cases in state court are now basically being set aside for retrial by the federal government. So state police are recommending somewhere around 18,000 cases to their federal counterparts each year. That's according to the state. Those are the figures that they've gathered. And so the Department of Justice, and this has been reported in Oklahoma, has been on you know a big hiring spree around the country um, in U.S. attorney's offices around the country to try and bring in basically backup prosecutors, line prosecutors, to to help process some of the 18,000 cases each year that are now being coming across its desk. Because you can imagine the existing capacity in Oklahoma at the time was not very large in terms of prosecuting these cases. So there's this this huge 
backlog, if you will. And so what what Oklahoma and in cities like Tulsa are saying is that they're 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 very far behind, and and the federal government's very far behind, and the federal government, according to the state and some some municipalities. The federal government's only able to focus on the more serious crimes and is letting everything else go unprosecuted. So Oklahoma, I, it's safe to say, has been freaking out about the the, the fallout from this McGirt decision. Um, you know, since it was decided, they've brought around like thirty appeals asking the Supreme Court to try and, you know, to revisit this decision and overturn it. All of those appeals were denied, and they've even like gone the rare step. This is this is not very common for a state to do, which often has its own attorney general's office or even its own solicitor general's office of hiring an outside private firm, in this case, Paul Weiss, it's a big New York um, uh, uh, law firm with a, with, a, with, a, with kind of a fledgling appellate practice to assist with its litigation over the McGirt decision. So this brings us kind of this case, Oklahoma versus Castro Huerta. And in this case, the court, it, it didn't want to revisit the McGirt issue kind of squarely on its face of whether to, to overturn it and whether to kind of go back to the old boundaries of these five nations. But the court did kind of agree to revisit kind of the peripheries of the McGirt decision. In particular, um, this has to do with whether uh, crimes perpetrated by non-Indians against Indians can uh, receive concurrent jurisdiction by the state of Oklahoma. So what that means is Oklahoma says that around like uh, you know 20% or a fifth of the 18,000 or so criminal cases that are being transferred to the feds those are crimes in which a non-Indian has committed an offense against an Indian. So, uh, you know, Oklahoma, by seeking this concurrent jurisdiction, they want to be able to prosecute these cases. It would kind of cut, it would take a, a sizable chunk out of these new cases that are being thrown over to the feds. So what ended up being the focus during arguments? Um, you, you mentioned they were kind of touching on these periphery issues, or at least that was the goal. Uh, how did arguments go? So Paul Weiss's kind of SCOTUS heavyweight, Canon Shamagam, he he stands up in the Supreme Court on Wednesday and he argues that federal law does not actually preempt state court jurisdiction over crimes committed by non-Indians against Indians. That there's nothing explicit in the text of you know the the United States Code that 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 basically says that this is an issue exclusively for the feds. And that therefore the Supreme Court should respect you know, states' sovereign authority to prosecute these cases. But, you know, I would say that there was no kind of clear consensus of where the justices were leaning. I would say there was tough questions on both sides, but Shemagam faced undoubtedly the toughest questions from Justice Neil Gorsuch. Now, he was the author of McGirt. He points to the history of uh, Native American victims not really being given a fair shake in state courts. And in fact, states abusing, he says, quote, abusing Indian victims in their courts. Counsel, it's easy enough to say that standing at the podium in Washington, D.C., but the history and the reality is should stare us all in the face. There's a reason why they've resisted jurisdiction over crimes against Indian uh, victims. So we've kind of heard that from Justice Gorsuch before in some of these cases, right? Yeah, that's right. But did the court or did any of the justices you know, want to talk about how this is going on the ground. Well, Shamagam certainly wanted to focus on that, right? So he says this is a situa- situation, quote, unlike 
any in recent history where what's going on right now in Oklahoma is a giant law enforcement experiment. You have half, almost half of an American state now, at least as to this category of crimes, under the exclusive criminal jurisdiction of the federal government. And the federal government, he says, is, quote, failing in that task. And so that's a pretty heavy charge. And I was listening to this and I was thinking, you know, I wonder what the Department of Justice is going to respond when they get up and argue their side of the case. And and how did they respond? Well, Deputy Solicitor General Ed Needler um, was asked those very questions by Justice Samuel Alito about whether the U.S. government is up to the task of prosecuting all these cases. Alito says, I think the most valuable information you could provide me at least is an assessment of the situation right now in Oklahoma and whether the criminal laws are being adequately enforced right now and whether the current situation in the judgment of the United States is sustainable. So Needler, he doesn't quite answer it like, like head on. He doesn't say, oh yeah, this is a totally sustainable situation because what he's counting on is that the DOJ is going to get up to speed, that they are going to kind of get the resources that they've been requiring. And he says, quote, the administration has requested an additional $40 million for assistant uh, U.S. attorneys and an additional 76 slots for FBI agents, additional federal marshals, additional money for the prisons, and Congress, in its political responsibility, we trust will appropriate that money. So <laughs> you're making a face. But yeah, th- his 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 position before the court is that we're basically putting all our, all our eggs in the basket of Congress, making good on its responsibility to allocate all these resources. What but it's counting the chickens before they hatch. Like, uh, I, I understand his argument and, and I see what he means. And, and one would hope that Congress does allocate those resources, but... Congress has not been known to allocate all the resources that, you know, state governments are, tend to ask for. So, uh, hello, I mean, like I just, the, yeah. The judiciary has been seeking, like, additional judgeships in so many, like, district, federal districts across the country. Um, you can actually go on the judiciary's website and... There's a section called judicial uh, emergencies, and basically they're 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 needed um, vacancies that have because there's such like huge backlogs of cases, yeah. and and Congress, when it comes to allocating new permanent judgeships, for instance, it hasn't really been very quick on the uptake, and can oftentimes take many years, even decades, before it actually does this. So you know maybe. Um, there's something going on behind the scenes in Congress that are, is like, you know, rapid fire responding to this crisis, as, as Oklahoma calls it. But um, it, it definitely seemed like uh, the Supreme Court is once again balancing the whole this test between, you know, what does the law say with respect to whether states can exercise this concurrent jurisdiction over this specific subset of crimes and what's the practical reality on the ground in the state of Oklahoma? So. We have kind of a theme this week, I would say. A big theme. Um, and interested, like you said, to kind of see where the justices land on these. Um, now, it was also a big week for for Needler, not just because he was uh, making these arguments. Is that right? Yeah. So, first of all, it wasn't just Breyer's milestone of his last argument that 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 represented that was represented by the by the Wednesday's argument, but also it was Deputy Solicitor General Edwin Needler's. 150th 150 Supreme Court arguments. That's quite a lot. That's impressive. That's impressive. Yeah, that is impressive. And um, uh, Chief Justice Roberts, right before he kind of paid his tribute to to Breyer's last day, uh, he also kind of gave Needler a, a, a nice little shout there, commending him. So a little bit of background on Needler. 
Roberts, for instance, is no stranger to him because he's been a fixture at the Supreme Court for decades. He's well known by members of the bench and bar alike. He joins the Department of Justice's Office of Legal Counsel in 1975 when it's under Antonin Scalia. Then he went to the Solicitor General's Office a few years later during the Carter the Carter administration. <laughs> and he's he's basically been there ever since, overlapping with you know Roberts when he was at the SG's office, Samuel Alito. Uh, Samuel Alito, there's a, there's a Washington Post article a few years back where Sam Alito has some nice quotes for Needler, basically saying he was a mentor when they were both at the uh, SG's office at the same time. Elena Kagan, of course, she was the SG before you know she joined the bench. And uh, I don't know if they had interactions, but Brett Kavanaugh was also at the SG's office in, I think, uh, late 80s, early 90s, or I guess it would have been early 90s, when he did like a one-year fellowship. So I, I suppose maybe he bumped elbows uh, across paths with Needler then too. So he has a lot of experience with the justices before they were even justices. He is somewhat of an institution unto himself, and he basically has now argued, you know, <laughs> wow, uh, do you think he'll hit 200? I don't know. That'd be pretty cool. So that does it for us this week in terms of the big oral arguments that we wanted to touch on. Um, but before we wrap up, there was also um, a bit of an update on the tr- a judicial transparency bill. I know this has become a, a bit of a topic for us this this term. So I just wanted to, um, to, to note it on Wednesday, the House passed by vo- voice vote, the Courthouse Ethics and Transparency Act which imposes stricter stock disclosure requirements on federal judges, which should apply to Supreme Court justices, although the text does not actually specify that. Um, the thinking is that it's written broadly enough to cover them. Right, Jimmy? Right. It applies to, I think, all federal judges. So there you go. Jimmy, do you want to kind of give us some of the backstory on this one? Well, the backstory comes out of actually a bombshell report by the Wall Street Journal, which found that 131 judges had failed to recuse themselves in 685 court cases between 2010 and 2018. So this made you know, huge waves on Capitol Hill, which was grilling the judiciary for a response. And so it appears that they've taken matters into their own hands and, 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 and now passed this new bill, which should you know now go to President Joe Biden's desk after it passed the Senate earlier in February. But basically what it does is it requires judges to file you know, these reports within 45 days of making transactions greater than $1,000. It, it also requires the, the judiciary to establish a searchable online database to give the public access to these disclosure forms. And those forms would have to be posted within 90 days of filing. Um, so it's not the, the, the added step that, that some had, had, have long pined for, that is that the Supreme Court actually be you know, bound by these, by the, the the code of conduct for U.S. judges and all these other ethics uh, measures, but it is kind of a moderate step in favor of uh, judicial transparency by having some of these transactions being disclosed in in these online searchable databases. So now I know that heads to uh, President Biden's desk. Um, kind of assuming he'll it will be signed into law. Um, I don't think there's there's much controversy over that one for for that to happen or not to happen, rather. Um, Jimmy, as always, great chatting with you. Great chatting with you, Natalie. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. We'd like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. We'd also like to thank contributing reporters, Britton Eakin, Linda Shim, Mike Lasusa, and James Arkin. 
Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search law360 in the term. Thanks for listening. And oh, please write us a review. 